Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure you automatically hear about each episode, sign up to our RSS feed either at iTunes or the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio, or any of the podcast directories. We're in all of them. Today's show will be about getting pregnant with male infertility. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education, resources, and most importantly, support for infertility and adoption. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is proud to say that we are underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring has a Heart Plus Pharmacy Savings Card, which helps patients both cash-paying and insured patients save money on their fertility medications. To get more information on the Heart Plus Pharmacy Savings Card, you can talk to your doctor, or you can visit the Faring website, faringfertility.com slash heart, or you could give them a call at 1-888-FARING, S-F-E-R-R-I-N-G. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility three times a week. And a recent one you might enjoy was yesterday's blog on the secret society, not society, sorority of infertility. Uh, There are many, many, many negative things about infertility. I guess that's a duh statement, right? Um, However, one of the upsides, if there is an upside, is the incredible bond of understanding and friendship that can arise, doesn't always, but can arise, um, amongst those who have suffered from this disease. And some of the stories that uh, people are posting in the comments are really touching. So I I, I thoroughly uh, recommend that you, you pop over there to the blog and, and post your own heartwarming story or not, uh, your story of perhaps not uh, of, of not having received support. Uh, and you can find it at creatingafamily.org slash blog. And I should actually mention that, that a couple of people have talked about, although there is a sorority uh, for infertility, there really isn't a fraternity uh, that uh, support for uh, men suffering from male infertility is sorely lacking. We'll talk about that some on today's show, actually. The Creating a Family radio show and all of our resources, in fact, on our site would not happen without the generous support of our sponsors, including our gold sponsors. We have Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. Cryos New York offers donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. We also have Reproductive Biology Associates. RBA has been a leader in the development and refinement of clinical procedures and scientific techniques. And they have two offices in the Atlanta area as well as offices throughout Georgia. You can find more information on RBA uh, as well as on Cryos uh, by clicking on their logo on our site or by going to the service provider page of our site. And that service provider page will take you to their website. And if you click on their logo, it will take you to their website. As I just mentioned, creating a family is a nonprofit, and one of the way we pay one of the ways we pay our bills 
is through our wonderful sponsors. I've just mentioned our gold sponsors, but we also have regular sponsors uh, who believe in our, uh, our, our mission of bringing you unbiased and accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. Um, if you'd like to help us, you can do that by supporting our sponsors. Make your first stop our the Creating a Family database, which you can find on our service provider page. You can find infertility clinics. You can find uh, donor and surrogacy agencies. You can find sperm banks. You can find a host of infertility service providers. And we give you a number of factors uh, that you can uh, find them for, uh, search them for. And, uh, and by supporting those who support us, you help us. And we thank you. Today's show, as I mentioned, is on creating, <clears throat> getting, rather not creating, getting pregnant with male infertility. Our guest today to talk about this are Dr. Grace Centola. She is an internationally recognized specialist in andrology and male infertility. She is the current president of the Society for Male Reproduction and Urology, and she is the lab and tissue bank director at Cryos International, one of our great sponsors. We also have Dr. Jessica Mann. She is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist with the Reproductive Science Center of New Jersey, another one of our sponsors. Uh, so let me thank you first uh, for both of your organizations supporting Creating a Family, and uh, let me also thank you, Dr. Sintola and Mann, for agreeing to be our guest today on Creating a Family. Well, thank you uh, very thank you, much, Don. and it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you, Don. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to uh, to patients and to, and to you and discuss the male infertility. Well, you know, and male infertility is, it, you know, I, it was interesting. Um, I really hadn't thought about it when I was writing the blog about the secret sorority, but two people, uh, some of the, two of the first comments we've received, one from a guy and one from a woman, pointing out that 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 even by using the term sorority, and they're right, um, that uh, we tend to overlook the male aspects uh, of infertility and and. Uh, although we don't do that generally, they're right that that particular blog did. So, Dr. Mann, how common is male factor infertility in the, in the general population of infertility patients? I've read statistics all over the board, anywhere from 30% to 50%. Uh, what What is the statistic? What is the accurate number? Yeah, for the most part, uh, I would say you're right. There is no accurate number because you know it also depends on the the location, geographic location. But but it's true. I mean, I would say 30 to 40 percent of the infertile couples have some uh, component of male infertility. Whether it is you know strictly the main reason why the couple needs assisted reproduction, or it is a contributor too. So it's not uh, solely female, but there is some kind of mild male infertility that plays a factor into their lack of, you know, uh, ability to conceive. So it's it's true. It's it's pretty high. 30 to 40 percent of all the patients we see have some kind of male infertility associated with them. You mentioned that there might be a geographic uh, distribution or, or a factor. Um, I had not heard that. What what is there? A, a, do you see male infertility uh, higher in in certain parts of the country or in certain parts of the world? No, but you see, you know, when you talk about, like, what the the literature and what it publishes, you know, there's nothing actually in terms of, you know, that uh, specifically says that this part of the world have more male or not. But you, you, if you think about, you know, exposure to 
specific, for instance, um, uh, plant, you know, that it could be radioactive or there are more men working. So you could think of why it's, there's discrepancies, and it's not like everywhere is like 40% or everywhere is 30%. So you could see that depending on occupational exposure and depending no, on what your practice is, you might see a little bit more higher prevalence of male than in other places. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Well, okay, the the one of the interesting things is that the certainly the easiest test to do when you're first realizing that you're not getting pregnant as soon as you thought you would be would be uh doing a semen analysis. And and Dr. Centola, we all know that that's what we we should that should be our first step. Is it important that this first test the semen analysis be done by a specialized doctor or can you use your internist or RE, reproductive endocrinologist or family doctor to perform the, the semen analysis? Well, um, the, the whole issue is to get an accurate semen analysis and to have one done in a uh, general physician's office who might not pick up some of the subtle uh, uh, changes that might occur uh, with male infertility. In addition, uh, the specialized laboratory will control for many factors so that we can get a reproducible and an accurate semen analysis. These uh, factors might be the uh, uh, abstinence period, uh, production of the specimen, or holding of the specimen prior to uh, bringing it to the laboratory, as well as the evaluation. It, it's not just looking at a slide under a microscope, although you can get some um, picture of what we're seeing with the with the male. We can, uh, under the microscope, look and see, are there sperm and are they moving? Uh, and and uh, the further steps that occur with a more specialized uh, laboratory or more specialized physician, such as a urologist who specializes in male infertility or the reproductive endocrinologist, maybe to look at, well, how many sperm are they, how how are they moving, as well as the uh, appearance of the sperm, the morphology of Are they normal-looking? Are they abnormal-looking? Do they have a lot of head defects or tail defects? All of this is taken into account when a good semen analysis is done. And with that information, then, the physician can interpret uh, the results of the uh, the analysis and make some kind of assessment as to what might be uh, the direction for the couple to take. Well, you've talked about a couple of different things that that a sperm a good sperm analysis would do, and that would uh, test for, and that would be volume, uh, sperm count, motility, morphology, uh, and there probably are some more as well. Which one of those factors? is more likely to be the problem, or I guess another way to ask that is, which is the most common problem that would cause uh, male infertility? Oh, boy, that's a, a little bit difficult for me to say. I, I guess I would uh, say that the um, more prevalent would probably be uh, motility issues, uh, the percent of sperm that are actually moving, uh, followed very closely by the um, uh, sperm concentration or the sperm count, uh, both of which obviously are are very important. Yeah. And uh, with the um, assisted reproductive procedures that I'm sure Dr. Mann could uh, touch on uh, uh, a little more in detail, 
uh, we can certainly say that uh, uh, both of those are, are important, but uh, sometimes they become less important with the availability of assisted reproductive procedures. Right, and we're going to, we'll move into talking about those in just a second. Before we get there, we have a question from Lynn. She asks, when giving a semen analysis, and semen, a semen sample, how long should the man have gone without sex to get the best representative sample? Uh, Dr. Santolo, that seems like that would be up your alley. Yes. <laughs> uh, basically, we recommend uh, that a semen anal- uh, uh, male have uh, no more than three days abstinence. Uh, so he needs to have an ejaculation and then uh, abstain for three days, then give the specimen for the analysis. Uh, unfortunately, there has always been um, the the notion that uh, if a male uh, uh, abstains for a long period of time, he's going to save it all up and then it'll look better. But in fact, it doesn't look better, with, often with a prolonged abstinence. Uh, sperm are uh, are dead or dying. Uh, you'll get uh, um, uh, a decrease in motility because of that. So we want to have a a generally a standard uh, so that there can be a comparative analysis between this particular person's uh, uh, semen analysis. And I want to point out that one semen analysis generally would would not be done. It is not good to just do one. Uh, but to do uh, two, if not three, semen analyses uh, uh, on um, with an interval of at least three, if not four weeks. Okay, and here's a question they've asked not to use their name, and they uh, it's it's a little long, so I'm going to just paraphrase. She is wondering if uh, the test done when the uh, semen is collected at home using uh, somehow with the uh, having the uh, the uh, collecting it through intercourse if that uh, and then taking it in to the office or into the lab if that reduces the uh, reliability of the test it shouldn't if uh, certain steps are are followed if the uh, analysis, I'm sorry, if the collection is done using a special uh, condom that is specific for uh, uh, semen analysis collection the, uh, that's used during intercourse, and then the specimen is brought to the uh, testing laboratory in a reasonable period of time, and, and again, uh, we don't want it to wait uh, an hour or two hours, Generally, you want that specimen to get to the lab uh, about 30 to 40 minutes after ejaculation. And it needs to be collected and held at either room temperature or as close to body temperature as possible. So obviously we don't want someone to put it on ice or in the refrigerator. We don't want it to be collected the night before and then brought in the lab the next morning. So there has to be some controls and uh, the laboratory should provide uh, specific instructions for collection. Um, if well, she was indicating that from the lab, they shouldn't wait. They should collect on site. And that may be the point. She said that the lab had been discouraging them from trying it at home, and yet that was their strong preference. Um, so, right. yeah, okay. Well, so I maybe- think you know, one needs to discuss. Uh, the details with the the laboratory with with their own physician. Some some men and and women will have some difficulty with having to collect it on site. It's, mm-hmm. It can be an uncomfortable 
uh, uh, situation, and you have to try to make some uh, provisions for uh, if it's going to be better to collect it at home, uh, have to give it a try. Try it, and then if there is something uh, uh, wrong, if you will, with the uh, motility or, or some other semen uh, uh, parameters, then uh, maybe be impressed that it would be a little easier to uh, have it collected on site. Well, you know, if for nothing else, I mean, that's the one advantage. The tests are not. I mean, there's very. There's nothing cheap about infertility, but but uh, semen analysis is probably the least expensive of any of the tests. So. As you point out, it's not a. It's not like you've wasted a lot of money if it didn't work. Um, right. For couples who want to try everything they can to up their odds before they go through fertility treatment, assuming they've got, uh, they know they have male factor at some uh, of some level. Um, Doctor Mann, what is your opinion on whether they should try any of the menstrual cups? The I guess some of the brands are Diva and Instead, uh, and uh, the, as I understand it. <clears throat> The way they are primarily recommended to be used, well, they're they're used for, for the menstrual cycle. But but if they're not being used for that, uh, for conception, um, they uh, it's believed that if you uh, insert the cup after intercourse, it will keep the sperm near the cervix, and they're up the odds of of the sperm finding its way into the into the uterus. Um, is there any uh, evidence to support that? Unfortunately, Don, there isn't, and uh, you know this happens with uh, some. Um, companies who, you know, you, you obviously try to minimize any invasive procedures. And so, uh, you know, when you're talking about uh, male infertility, you have to define how severe it is. I mean, if you're talking about a man who has poor concentration, you know, it, there's nothing you really can do short of IVF in some instances to help them. And if you're talking about maybe a subtle morphology, also, um, you know, these these other methods haven't been shown really to improve uh, outcomes. So, you know, the problem with uh, some of these methods is obviously they're not FDA regulated and there's nothing that they can say, well, this has been shown to improve uh, chances of pregnancy. But, uh, you know, after ejaculation, really, the sperm is, you know, is found relatively quickly, and two, if it if it is sperm, you know, and then if all the million of sperm that's deposited in the vagina and near the cervix, they they should be able to swim up, and they should be able to be there. There's really no recommendation either to say that lying flat or elevating your pelvis will improve things. Those are those are sort of myths, but and you know, like I said, it really depends on the degree of male infertility, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. to some extent you can say morphology is, uh, you know, it's uh, lower on the list of uh, male infertility, but there's still, you know, something called teratosuspermia, which means that this, the shape isn't great. That also, in light of normal concentration and normal motility in some studies, haven't been showed, shown to be uh, necessary to to do something like ICSI, where you inject sperm into the egg. So, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, I don't, you know, usually uh, tell patients that it's something that they should spend their money on, uh, you know, to improve their odds. I mean, uh, usually when patients are just trying to conceive, you, um, having regular intercourse every other day is what has been shown to improve the odds of getting pregnant. But once you diagnose male infertility, then you have to proceed with treatment, and that's not, uh, uh, you know, a form of treatment that would lead to an improvement in the chance of conception. 
So if you were to recommend the frequency of intercourse, it would be to in, to increase your odds, the, to make your odds the highest without having to, um, because most people are trying to, if both from the uh, from the standpoint of medical intervention, but also from cost, right. they're going to try as much as they can to increase their odds on their own. So you're saying <clears throat> intercourse every other day um, is is considered the the uh, the gold standard, so to speak, of of uh, for fertility. Did, did I understand you correctly? Correct. Dr. That is correct. Yeah. And actually, you know, that has been shown to be the best. Even, you know, when you talk about ovulation predictor kits, trying to time it right. I mean, those are beneficial, especially in couples who are not together because one travels uh, yeah. for whatever reason. But mm-hmm. but if you want to talk about lowest, uh, you know, cost most efficient, I mean, you, when comparing an ovulation predictor kit with regular intercourse, you're doing the same. So as long as the woman obviously has regular periods and there's mm-hmm. no other factors, you really improve your odds by just having regular intercourse, and by that I mean every other day, having intercourse every other day. Um, this is Dr. Santola, and yeah. I wanted to just uh, uh, emphasize what Dr. Mann did say, that if there is some... Uh, small evidence, if you will, of uh, male infertility, you need to treat it. And having uh, intercourse, uh, what we do know from animal studies and and studies that happened many, many years ago, if you have 100 million sperm put at the level of the cervix, probably only 1,000 get to the uh, place where the egg is. So you can understand if uh, we have a reduction in motility or count, they're not going to get through the cervix as efficiently. So uh, using these uh, uh, cervical cups and, and those those kinds of things might not improve matters. In addition, as Dr. Mann can probably attest to, with uh, cervical factor and, and maybe even a postcoital test might give some kind of uh, information to the physician that, might have sperm, but they're just not getting any further than the cervix. Yeah. So I would definitely point mm-hmm. out that um, uh, while li- while going ahead and having uh, intercourse every other day is certainly something that uh, you would recommend, but uh, if it hasn't, if nothing has happened after you know a certain period of time, nine months to twelve months, clearly there has to be some intervention. So then you need to move. You need to move it on, um, yeah. and you would go to see. Uh, the first step is usually to go to an infertility clinic to see a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, Doctor Santolo, do you wait at that point to have the RE, the reproductive endocrinologist, send you to a urologist, or should you be making your first stop if you if you have been diagnosed with male infertility, your first stop a urologist? Well, I think that if um, if uh, what happens concurrently is evaluation of the female and the male, and the reproductive endocrinologist uh, or the, the gynecologist may take the first step by sending the male uh, to have a test, have a semen analysis. Mm-hmm. And based on the results of that semen analysis, if everything is normal, maybe initially not seeing a urologist. But if uh, there are some uh, uh, problems with motility or morphology, et cetera, uh, then maybe while the uh, female is being evaluated that uh, the, the male can go ahead and see a urologist uh, 
just to have a real good physical, uh, uh, good history, and, um, uh, and another semen analysis by a specialized laboratory uh, and, and see how we can then take the male side of it and do either further evaluations or treatment to improve. And by that time, the female has been evaluated and both can come together and make a decision how to proceed. Yeah, yeah I think the... I, I agree with what Dr. Santula says in terms of, uh, you know, the the one. You, it's difficult to act uh, on one semen analysis. Of course, you know, you you want to repeat it, um, and uh, and then based on that, you can decide. You know, if if it's a subtle difference, you might not, you know, have to send the the patient to the urologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, often, we um, can check blood work and then start the workup. And uh, if it's something that's persistent and it's severe, we definitely will have them seen a urologist. Uh, and uh, it's something that, you know, as uh, we are trying to help the women move along, like she had said, and we also said that to the man to repeat the semen analysis, is there any other, you know, endocrine uh, reason for the low count? Are there genetic causes for the low count and or count or motility? You know, are there other factors like uh, the patient smoking too much, you know, are there other things to have they had a history of chemotherapy that could explain why the sperm parameter is low? The other thing is that I, I have found, which I think is very interesting, for some men that have seen um, primary care doctors for just, you know, occasional erectile dysfunction, and they're given um, testosterone, exogenous testosterone. Well, you know, that completely will, you know, shut down the hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis. And so, you know, for these men, what I tell them is stop, and we will repeat it. And and, and often, you know, it can take as long as three months to recover completely, but I have seen it as early as a month, and you see a completely normal count. So, Now, wait, um, what was it you were saying that they were being prescribed that was affecting? I didn't catch what you were saying. Testosterone. So basically, you know, and about Mm -hmm. like testosterone, like gel, and yeah. so you would think, well, it's just a gel. It's not a big deal. But it really can cause complete, you know, lack of spermatogenesis. No more Absolutely. sperm. So make men sterile. Absolutely. I mean, testosterone has been uh, studied as a male contraceptive. That's right. So That's correct. Let's point out that uh, please don't have your husbands on any kind of testosterone. Yep. It seems the opposite because, I mean, we think of testosterone as the male hormone, so you would think it would be just the opposite, that it would be increasing your sperm count. So, yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, good to know. Creating a family provides resources for infertility, both male and female infertility. One resource that you might find helpful is we have two videos, one on the causes of male infertility and the other on the treatment of male infertility. You can find both of those under infertility on the blue horizontal menu just on our site. Just hover over the word infertility, click on the word video, or you could just go to the Creating a Family channel on YouTube. Now, Let's assume that people have, uh, at this point, they are seeing a RE, they're an infertility clinic, a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, Dr. Mann, how do they know whether they should try IUI first, interuterine injection first, also known as artificial insemination for our audience who's not familiar with the the acronym IUI? Um, Should they try that first, or should they go directly to IVF, and does it matter what the the sperm analysis had said so, so when they're making this decision 
But in terms of the sperm analysis, it helps us decide, you know, often which way to go. So I think uh, you can use it in some cases to tell the patient that they, they certainly will not achieve pregnancy with an intrauterine insemination. Uh, in other cases, it's a possibility, and so it's difficult to, if you, if you, you know, as a patient, if you look at the sample to say what it is. I think you have to listen to what your RE has to say and other things that have to that are important are obviously your partner. So how old is the woman? Is this something that's feasible? Is there any evidence of diminished ovarian reserve? Am I concerned that this is not going to work? And and there are times when you can give intrauterine insemination a try. I would say that often if the woman is ovulatory, um, you know, you could start with an insemination, but... Uh, Typically, you don't just do an insemination alone. There, most of the time, you, it's medicated either with a fertility pill for the woman or an injectable cycle for the woman. And as I mentioned, there are cases where there's severe male factor, um, and by that I mean like a very, very low concentration where you're basically, you know, not improving the odds in any way, and it will be considered futile treatment. And so in those cases, you have to recommend in vitro. Explain how an IUI works and and why is it perceived that an IUI would uh, help a couple that has, let's say, mild infertility? Uh, And I'm going to direct this question to you, Dr. Mann. Sure. Um, So let's say by the time we see a patient who has been trying to conceive and there is a mild male factor uh, component, and by that I mean like low perhaps morphology, otherwise motility looks good, concentration is not so bad, they've been trying on their own for a year. Um, Then the aim of the intrauterine insemination is to get rid of all the debris, get rid of everything and just have model sperm, so moving sperm that is highly concentrated in a small amount and putting that into the patient's uterus, into the woman's uterus. Now, you you increase the chances of egg and sperm meeting by putting it closer to the fallopian tube. But like I said, you know, if the woman is ovulatory and has one egg per month, you're really not increasing that so much. So you have to use something else, like I said, as Clomid or uh, an injectable medications so that you can increase the number of eggs and therefore increase exposure of eggs and sperm together. And that's how you get a higher chance at a pregnancy in a given month. We're very worried here at Creating a Family about um, the multiple birth rate. And one of our missions is to promote the idea that uh, multiple birth is not the uh, desired outcome of fertility treatment. So if you were using a medicated IUI cycle, um, would you not be increasing your risk of a multiple birth? Yes, um, typically with inject with injectable medications, especially you you do because you can't control how many eggs you produce. But but that's why you have to make sure that you know um, that the place you go to has the same goal in mind as we are. That's our goal as well. And so when I say increasing the eggs, it's not that your aim is not to get five eggs in a 28 year old. You know, you're trying to go mm-hmm. from like maybe one a month to like two. Um, it increases slightly the chances of twins, but you have to be very careful. You have to be very careful if you're talking about injectable medications. In terms of Clomid, there's a, a very low chance of twins or more than that, uh, you know, with Clomid. And so these cycles are usually monitored. So you're looking, as you are giving the patient the medication, you know how many eggs they're producing. 
And if they're producing too many, at times you have to cancel the cycle, reduce the medication. You know, so so you are careful when you do these cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I would, you know, in my mind, and uh, I think there's so many benefits to in vitro fertilization. The most important one is that you can control how many embryos you can put back and reduce mm-hmm. substantially the amount the amount of multiple pregnancies. Patients think the opposite. Somehow yeah, they feel they that IVF gives you the multiples, and I tell them, and it's hard to believe, like, it's not true. Actually, you can't, I can't control because I'll be able to put only one or two, depending on your age, um, and so reducing substantially the, the risk of multiple pregnancies. Yeah, we, we sing that song a lot around here as well, that... It is a myth that um, artificial insemination is the safer, safer, but it right. is the cheaper. Yeah. Yes. Um, Dr. Centola, and this may not be uh, your expertise, so tell me if not, and we'll we'll cast the, the, the question over to Dr. Mann. But is your perception is that ICSI, intercytoplasmic sperm injection, which is when we select a sperm and and I know this is unscientific, but more or less poke it into the egg. Um, and is that now more or less routine uh, when you're doing IVF with any male infertility involved? Uh, I would definitely agree with your statement, and Dr. Mann can can certainly comment as well, but uh, it is very routine. There are many programs across the country that will automatically go ahead and do ICSI on uh, almost every, you know, couple that are going through IVF, but especially in the in those with male factor, because we don't have a proven uh, success with that man's sperm being able to fertilize uh, on their own, if you will, uh, because uh, there hasn't been a pregnancy or a previous failed IVF cycle. Um, if we do standard insemination in these uh, couples and there's a total failed fertilization, that's, in my opinion, a wasted cycle. So many programs will go ahead and just do IVF uh, ICSI uh, right uh, at the start or at least uh, divide the number of eggs into half uh, standard insemination, half ICSI, so that uh, at least you'll hopefully get some fertilization. Is there a concern, though, that the sperm, if, if you're choosing sperm, that that's that, that, that if we if we go about it in the natural way, the, the the survival of the fittest seems to come into play. Where the sperms that actually make it up through the the cervical mucus into the cervix, into the you know gets to the fallopian tubes and gets to, you know to the egg and is then able to penetrate the outer shell of the egg, that that's a hardy little booger. And so that if we if we're just selecting a sperm, what is the the research showing as far as how can we select? A sperm that seems to be, you know, the strongest swimmer, the, the the greatest chances of of being able to fertilize an egg that will be able to implant and grow into, uh, or egg that fertilize an egg into an embryo that will be able to implant that will be able to grow into a baby. Well, the um, uh, the whole procedure to select sperm uh, uh, is to select that sperm based on its motility and uh, and or most specifically its morphology. And uh, what you're referring to is, is natural selection, mm-hmm. and so that the the one expects that the most normal sperm would be the one that would be doing the fertilization. We're hoping when we do ICSI that we're selecting for that same type of sperm, the most normal, most functional sperm. And, and how do you do that? that into the egg. 
I mean, how do you well, do? You, are you literally looking at sperm under a microscope and, and saying, hmm, that one is swimming quickly, that one's got a you know a normal shaped head, that type of thing? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. basically that's mm-hmm. what you're looking at, trying to take the, the select the sperm that looks the most normal. Now, once that sperm gets into the egg, uh, we there are other steps that are occurring in that natural selection process. Uh, so that, uh, and more specifically, uh, nowadays what uh, what we are looking at is the normalcy of the DNA of that sperm, and whether it can meet with the DNA of the the egg, and then take steps further with uh, uh, cell division and, and embryo development. Uh, so still, uh, once the sperm gets into the egg, the steps are not done. And uh, there, uh, there is some further uh, controls by the sperm and by the egg that allow the, the further steps in embryo development to take take place. Mm-hmm. We, you know, there is some human issue here. Obviously, uh, we can look at the sperm and we can see that it looks normal, but uh, we can't see the DNA. We can't right. see what's what's in that sperm nucleus. We have to uh, uh, take take it from there. Now, with that said, however. There, uh, the research has shown that ICSI does not increase the chances of um, uh, uh, problems with the with the embryos or with the the child, the the birth, uh, the the resulting uh, child, and um, uh, the uh, the whole process uh, results in normal children, and the success rates with ICSI are 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 certainly acceptable, and in some programs are 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 very high. I was just going to ask about the success rates, um, Doctor Mann. What does? Uh, it's almost an unfair question because you're not comparing apples to apples. But um, if you're doing a cycle, what is the the across the board considered the success rates for IVF with ICSI cycles compared to IVF without ICSI? So, Don, that's a good question, um, and I'm glad that you brought, uh, asked me that because I. You know the the rate of ICSI in the in the all the clinics in the U.S. is about 66 percent. So it's not you know, and that because there are some patients that need it for male factor, and there are some patients that don't. In cases of you know unexplained infertility, and that can be caused by a subtle male factor, also can be into this category. You don't always need to do ICSI, and there are programs like. Um, that will use ICSI routinely. There are programs that will use it depending on the degree of the male infertility. And what I mean by that is, for instance, um, depending on a total model count on a, on the day of production. If it's less than 5 million moving sperm, then we will not do ICSI. I mean, we will do ICSI. If it's higher than that, then we will not do ICSI. And so the bottom line is um, looking at fertilization rates, because that's what you're achieving with ICSI. With ICSI, you're just making sure that fertilization happens. Mm-hmm. If there are other factors, such as poor egg quality, fine, you'll inject the egg into the sperm. You might get better fertilization rate, but the patient's not going to get pregnant. So it's just very difficult to say ICSI, no ICSI. I definitely don't tell patients that you must do ICSI unless, like I said, it's severe, low moving sperm, and that's when we usually recommend it. So we don't routinely use that across the board. Um, you know, it's uh, something that we use, and we, like I said, you look back at your inter- internal data. How many of your cycles where you do ICSI or you don't do ICSI achieve fertilization or not? And the no-fur rate for us at least is similar. You know, um, 
So it really, it's really difficult to say ICSI or not. ICSI is not really going to help you if the problem is an air quality problem. You're not doing right. anything by just injecting this. You know, okay, fine, you'll do it, but you might actually get false reassurance. Okay, there's production of, a, of, an, a, of an embryo, but it's not a normal one. So it's just, uh, you know, not, I think, the standard of care to routinely do ICSI on everybody. Actually, it's not. And the concern, although the studies look uh, positive in terms of birth defects and whatnot, there actually was a very good, well-designed study that was published last year looking at, at birth defects in the IVF patients and looking at infertile patients. And what they found is that IVF alone does not increase the congenital birth rate in patients who are doing IVF. But when you look at ICSI, it's slightly increased. And not by that, it's like 2%. But the question is, is it the male factor or is it the ICSI alone? Because you can't, if you're doing ICSI on everybody, you can't say that it's really the male factor or the procedure. So I think, you know, we have to just be a little careful as to what we say to patients, what is really safe. So far, it looks okay, but I think only time will tell. And if we all were doing ICSI on everybody, then you may be able to, you know, discern that uh, the difference. But it's just really hard to counsel patients sometimes. You know, we don't have enough data, long-term data, mm-hmm. to say that it is 100% safe. It's it's true. We've done, uh, in the last, I think it was about last month, we did a show um, analyzing the research that you were speaking of right then, as well as other research that's out there right now on um, the, I think it was, is IVF bad for babies? I think it's the title of the show for those in the audience who, and we will uh, link to it in the blog tomorrow. I will link to that show. Um, and analyzing all the studies that are out there right now. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, I recommend <clears throat> listening to that show. Uh, Creating a Family keeps in touch with our audience, primarily through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility, including uh, research developments. Uh, we, that's where we, tell, uh, we, we post that information in our newsletter as well as the upcoming week's uh, blog and show topic. To, to receive our newsletter, you can sign up for them on the left-hand side of any page of our website, creatingafamily.org, or if you just want to, to be added, uh, you, you know, just send us an email, info at creatingafamily.org, and we will add you. Um, we've got a question from Renee, and she and her husband have male factor, and they have decided for uh, it, uh, for a number of reasons, but primarily economic reasons, to forego uh, infertility treatment and to utilize uh, egg. I mean, egg. I'm sorry, sperm from a sperm bank. And she has some concerns about the safety of the sperm as well as she calls it the vitality of the sperm. And I, I assume by that she means the count, the motility, the morphology, and, and all of that of the sperm in the sperm bank. So, um, and I know, uh, Dr. Sintola, this is one of your areas of expertise. Uh, um, sperm banking is one of your areas of expertise. How? What type of assurance does Renee and other couples have uh, of the of the the safety of the sperm in a sperm bank. Uh, she doesn't say what she means, but I assume she means by from a disease disease standpoint, um, as well as knowing that when you're um, paying for that first sperm, that it's going to be sperm that has good morphology, mortality, and count. Well, uh, my initial recommendation and strong recommendation would be to make sure that uh, donor sperm are purchased 
from an appropriately uh, reputable and licensed facility. And by that I mean the cryobanks that you purchased your donor sperm from uh, first and foremost should have their uh, registration with the FDA, uh, uh, which shows that they are complying with the FDA regulations for donor screening and uh, donor testing. And in uh, other cases, the sperm bank should also be licensed by the state that they are located in or uh, uh, some of the other states. Uh, for instance, um, not all the states have uh, uh, specific licensing for sperm banks. The only states that do are uh, uh, New York, uh, California, Maryland, I believe, and um, a couple of other states have registration but not specific licensing. New York State was one of the, uh, if not the first state that uh, uh, published specific regulations for uh, tissue banks, particularly uh, reproductive tissue banks or sperm banks. And they basically tell us exactly how we have to select and screen, uh, test, and quarantine the, the sperm with retesting of, of the sperm donor uh, prior to any release of, of the sperm. Now, this involves uh, very rigorous testing uh, of the donor uh, initially and six months later, uh, a complete and history of the donor. In fact, our, our, uh, uh, the, the screening history form that I use is about 25 pages long. Uh, you have regular physical exams every six months of that donor uh, to give uh, uh, quite an assurance that we have uh, we are free from uh, uh, communicable diseases and and even uh, certain genetic diseases as well. However, it is not always 100%. We do what is currently available for the testing, uh, but I I can I can say that um, it, the good reputable licensed sperm banks are, are safe and uh, uh, just make sure that you use uh, uh, one of those facilities. Along the same line, we have a question from Carolyn, and she wants, she um, is, they are considering uh, utilizing the sperm from her husband's brother, and she wants to know if there are any advantages going through an infertility clinic um, versus, I, she doesn't say versus what, but I assume she means versus uh, not just, uh, depositing, I guess, in home deposit of their uh, of the sperm, or, or I'm not sure what her alternative would be. There are definitely home inseminations, however, so right, she's right. doing it that way. Um, well, any thoughts on Carol for Carolyn about whether or not uh, to go through an RE? She doesn't say, but I am assuming um, she does say that they have male factors. She starts by that, but she doesn't. I, I'm assuming she does not have any fertility issues. Well, I would still suggest uh, that they they work with a physician at least uh, in in the beginning, so that they have some appropriate counseling. My my first thoughts about using a a, a husband's brother is that you have to be prepared uh, to know who that the the person that gave the sperm is. You're going to be seeing your brother-in-law all the time. Your brother-in-law is going to be seeing your child all the time. And you want to make sure that there is a comfort level that uh, that will be in the family for the long term. Now with that said, I also encourage you 
to make sure that your brother-in-law does go through appropriate testing. Now, genetically and you know, family history, you're pretty much going to know all of that. But there are some things that you might not know about your brother-in-law's uh, uh, social and sexual history, so you want to make sure of those issues. And that will be covered if you deal with a, a reproductive endocrinologist or, or a cryobank, for, for that matter. Uh, he would be considered a selected or a known donor, and he would have to go through complete screening and, and testing. This is for your safety. This is for the safety of, of your child. You're all covered. Everything is, is, is fine. Um, and, again, you want to uh, just be be aware of the the psychological issues, knowing that it's your brother-in-law. He knows um, uh, you had a child that, that is biologically his, uh, if you will. I remember years ago when I was speaking with uh, many couples, I, uh, my initial uh, job was at the University of Rochester, um, and I would tell people that uh, you have to be ready for the fact that when you're disciplining your child, your brother-in-law, who was the sperm donor, might not uh, agree with the way you are disciplining your child. So you have to be ready for these. You have to talk it all out ahead of time, both sides, and and make sure um, everyone is comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Some people feel that using their brother-in-law at least gives a connection, uh, more of a connection to the husband and the the family and and the genetics with the husband, and that's certainly a valid valid um, a consideration, but think of the other sides of the issue as well. And again, nowadays with all of the screening and testing that we do on uh, the anonymous sperm donors, it's more acceptable and it's safer than it was many years ago. Yes, yeah. Um, Dr. Mann, I wanted to, before we, we move on, and we're, we're going to head now to talking about some of the dietary and uh, lifestyle uh, choices that can affect male fertility. But before we do that, you've mentioned uh, before that uh, it is not uncommon to see low-grade, not severe male infertility uh, combined with low-grade, not severe female infertility and and you end up with a, an infertile couple where if either of those uh people uh were with somebody who had had no issues at all they they probably wouldn't be having um a problem uh what do you see that fairly common where you would say that it's actually a mixed issue uh for infertility and if you if you wanted to throw out a percent of the of that that would be fine you, you may not know the percentage but yeah, in terms of combined, um, what you see is usually about like up to a 20%, but I think it's, and this is what's been reported, but it, it might be even higher. If you if you consider like a mild, you know, male factor and a mild female, it's, uh, then you would take out a lot of this unexplained, you know, because yeah, some people consider this unexplained because there's no discrete abnormal, you know, very high FSH, but it's just subtly like getting up there. The AMH is a little bit low for the woman. So, so then it would no longer be unexplained. But but there is, you know, if they're not getting pregnant, there's there's something else, and there is a combined uh, degree of, of factors that can make it difficult for the couple to get pregnant. And, you know, in those cases, really, if, if you, you look at the literature, you know, 
things like you know Clomid plus anterior insemination can be helpful depending on the woman's age too. I think mm-hmm. uh, for for any couple. Uh, you can you need to also counsel them that in vitro really gives them the best odds you know in a given cycle i mean if if they're younger don't have the money or resources then they could try less invasive methods and uh you know often they may be successful but if it's somebody you know where the woman is over 35 and that's they say i say the woman because that's uh, the driving factor for reduced pregnancy rates for the most part you know if you're talking about somebody with mild male infertility then then you might be better off you know maximizing your fecundity your per- chance of getting pregnant in a given month by proceeding with in vitro fertilization yeah you know and often there's been there was an interesting study done and I don't remember the guy's name anyway it doesn't matter who um did a study not within the last couple of years it was reported at ASRM and it, from just doing an economic analysis and then his study indicated that, in fact, um, it actually worked out to be cheaper to do IVF because you're, of your increased chance of conception uh, versus uh, he was comparing, if I remember correctly, um, you know, the, the, the protocol at the time that was somewhat standard, which was three IUIs before you know, moving into uh, IVF. And, and you know, it, it, was, it was an interesting study. Yeah, there was a study in two. I think it was a little older. It's a Richard Reindoller from IVF. That's uh, it. One of the yeah. Well, that one actually mm-hmm. looked at what they did is they had these couples going through what was traditionally thought for unexplained infertility, the standard of care. They thought Clomid, IUI, um, then going to uh, gonadotropins, which is the injectables, IUIs, and then IVF, and that's what was thought to be the you know the norm. And what they compared was actually Clomid to going straight to IVF. And they found that patients were getting pregnant faster and it was cheaper to bypass the injectable cycle in many levels because, as we said before, you have less multiples and, and mm-hmm. then it also becomes cheaper because the injections aren't inexpensive. The patient still has to pay for the injection. So those cycles cost and, and mm-hmm. add costs, add stress, anxiety. And uh, so it is, you know, people don't think that... Uh, IVF is safer, but I, you know, I, I firmly believe that it is safer than than proceeding with the injectable cycles. Um, and okay. so you can give somebody a try with something like Clomid and IUIs because most of these patients, if they get pregnant, they'll get pregnant quickly, um, and uh, you will have very, very few patients with twins. I mean, the highest report rate is eight percent, so like majority of them are having singletons. Um, and if they don't, then they should really go move on to IVF. Dr. Santola, and if if I could make a comment, um, the this is why it is so very important, in my opinion, and, and I'm sure in the rest of the panel, that you work with a reproductive endocrinologist, a specialist who can look at the the male side, look at the female side, and come up with a plan that can be individualized for for you, the couple. Mm-hmm. Um, in you know, I, I found that in also in the literature over the years, and and personally with with many couples, many would rather try a few cycles of IUI. There there have mm-hmm. been uh, reports in the literature of, of good success with IUI, even with a low sperm count, mm-hmm. and with 
many insurances covering IUI but not covering the more expensive IVF, mm-hmm. a lot of couples do elect to try a few cycles of IUI with uh, without drugs than with right. uh, drugs before they go to IVF. But the 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 point I'm trying to make is that it's so important to work with a reproductive endocrinologist, a, a fertility program, so that the the treatment can be individualized. Based and you're not wasting time. Right. That's no. the right. other right. so important yes. part. You know, if you're 22 and you've got a little bit of time to kill, but right. if you're 32, you really don't have much. Time is not on your side. Yeah. Right. So that's, Absolutely. Yeah, that's such a good point. And we do see people who spend too much time, it seems, at the beginning stages. And I understand why. I mean, it's it's it, there's both a cost and there's a, you know, a medicalization of what they had hoped would not be a, a medical process at all. And and so I mean I certainly understand, but um, time is not on your side when it comes to conception. Um, before we we move on, I do want to make sure before we, we run out of time, I do want to touch on some of the dietary, um, uh, in general dietary issues. We've got a uh, so uh, we've got an email from Lucy who wants to know. She said I read where men with low sperm count should avoid soy products. Is there any truth to that, Doctor Centola? Uh, I have not heard that myself. I don't know if Dr. Mann has heard that. I think there are a lot of other things that are possibly at issue uh, uh, here. Uh, let's in, talk in, about some of the other dietary diet. things. Yeah, yeah I have do. not heard yeah, of uh, soy either. I haven't heard that that would decrease sperm yeah. counts in any way, but um, yeah. no. Okay, so that, that probably is a myth. Um, is there any research to support that there's anything from a dietary standpoint um, not lifestyle yet. We're going to move to lifestyle in just a moment. But from a dietary standpoint, any research that would support saying that um, there is some type of diet change you could make that would impact male fertility? Let, I'd like to hear from both of you. Let me start with Dr. Sintola, and then we'll go to Dr. Mann. I would think that uh, there's some evidence in the literature to uh, show that uh, a good diet, uh, low in cholesterol, is good. Uh, too high of a cholesterol is not good for the sperm membrane. Um, and uh, a good multivitamin and minerals are also good. So I guess I would say a good, healthy lifestyle uh, is appropriate in, in the, this instance as well. And um, obesity is not a good uh, not a good condition to have. Uh, there is some evidence to suggest that obesity uh, results in in uh, reduced sperm function and and certainly reduced sperm parameters. Do we know why that is? That 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 uh, BMI or obesity would impact sperm quality. Um, I think it's all related to the the cholesterol, the dietary issues. Also, probably to the effect of the body weight mass, and and the testicles are are uh, generally drawn up farther into the body, and the heat uh, the heat issue. Yeah, yep. yeah I, I agree. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with Dr. Santola. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's touched on everything, and uh, obesity is probably the one that's uh, been studied the most. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, increasing in, you know obesity in terms of not just uh, you know at the level of the, the increased cholesterol for the patient, but the body weight. And the exposure of the scrotum to the you know the the body and the folds. So then, 
they're actually right. under increased elevation, so there's a lower abnormal, I mean, more uh, abnormalities on sperm parameters for these men. We were quickly running out of time, but I wanted to get to one last question, um, and she was asking about is there any truth to the um, carrying a cell phone in your pocket um, could impact uh, sperm quality. Her husband is going in for a sperm analysis, and she would uh, wants to uh, know whether she should be telling him to not carry his cell phone in his pocket. So uh, let me, uh, Dr. Mann, let me throw that to you, and then uh, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Santola, if you have any thoughts on the cell you phone know, in the pocket. I, I actually read the studies a few years ago, and I just, it's kind of hard that to say that there was, I, I think, a couple only that showed that, and I'm not sure. You know, I, I think if you think about it, it's possible that that could decrease the counts. I don't think it's something to the point that it would be a meaningful decrease in counts. So I don't usually um, believe that it's, uh, it's something substantial. But just like anything, you know, if you can avoid it, I mean, I, I can tell you I don't usually put my cell phone near my breast either. You know, there's nothing in the literature to say that you shouldn't, but I try to be cognizant of those things. And I think um, I I don't know how to answer that question because, um, you know, it's just difficult to say that that, yes, that's the reason why the sperm count is low. I don't think that could it be a contributor, perhaps. Um, I don't think that will be the sole reason why some men have lower sperm count. And, uh, you know, I, I usually don't tell every patient that they need to put their cell phones away from their their pocket, but I don't know what Dr. Santola feels. Okay, we'll feels get the last you. word, Dr. Santola. Okay. I would absolutely agree with you, and uh, what what we know from these studies, there have been several that have been published, and the problem with these studies is that uh, there aren't as many numbers of study subjects, and how do you actually measure the uh, the microwaves from the cell phone and, and the, the exposure to the testicle? And uh, so I think there have been some flaws in in those published studies. But um, one thing also to keep in mind, if you're going to stop carrying your cell phone in your pocket, um, you don't want, you know, it takes three months for any effects to potentially be realized. So uh, it it might not show something now, it might show something, uh, but three months down the road, there would be something He would need to different. be recommending him avoiding his cell phone for three months. Yeah, and that would be Bluetooth. very difficult. And, and <laughs> once again, I'm not sure, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I would definitely agree with Dr. Mann that uh, there might be some uh, effect, but it's it's probably minimal. None that's supported by the research. Yeah, All right, not well, strongly supported. Not yeah. strongly, correct. Okay. That's interesting. All right. Um, this show, as well as all the resources at Creating a Family, are brought to you by the generous support of our sponsors, including our gold sponsor, Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax Cryobank has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Thank you so much, Dr. Jessica Mann and Dr. Grace Centola, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. For our audience, if you want to participate in a discussion on the topics of this show, check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. To get more information on Cryos International, you can go to their website, which is ny, as for New York, dot cryosinternational.com. To get more information on the Reproductive Science Center in New Jersey, you can go to their website, which is that's where you can get more information on Dr. Mann. Um, and their website is fertilitynj.com. 
And I should tell you that Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. You can find me on Twitter at Dawn Davenport One. You can find Creating a Family on Twitter at Creating a Family. On Facebook, you can you can connect with me at Dawn Davenport One. You can also like our Facebook page, the Creating a Family Facebook page, and we would love to have you join the Creating a Family Facebook support group. Uh, to get to the support group, just type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box and both the page and the group will pop up. You can like the page and join the group. Thank you for joining us today, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now, an ad from Dad. All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.